Welcome to Geared for Growth. I'm your host, Mike Mortlock. Today, we're talking all about property data and analytics. And who better than serial offender and serial guest, Kent Lardner, who is the founder of Suburb Trends. Now, Kent is going to walk us through how do we find investment property opportunities when the data is looking so good across the country. If you're filling in your data, trying to narrow down your suburbs and you're looking for things like vacancy rates under 2% and inventory levels under four months, then you're going to get a sea of opportunities. So he talks to us about how to find the good prospects when everything looks good. We also chat to him about the government's plans to fix the housing affordability crisis. We talk a little bit about how capable they will be of doing that. And if they are, what are they likely to do and how would that influence your decision as a property investor if you're wanting to get the best possible results? He also gives us his insights into how affordability can create opportunities for investors and what he looks for in regions around the country to see whether it has green shoots or potential for serious capital growth. It's an awesome interview with Kent and I always have a lot of fun with Kent. Here he is. Kent Lardner, thanks for joining me back on Geared for Growth. It's been a while. It has been a little while, yes. What have you been up to? I've been focused very much on media work of late. Yep. So um, You've always been a bit of a media darling. I, I'm building some solid relationships with some of the media um, and I'm putting out more and more reports now that seem to be working so well, that's a good thing well people we like here them. at geared for growth are a big fan of your data and we want to posit the question to you when everywhere looks good how do you how do you pick the goodest of the good if we're <laughs> going to allow that to be a word and you well, know to be fair i am just quoting you off off air but it's it's a it's a real consideration right because you if if let's say Back in the old days, I'd be like, all right, I want to make sure that I get a place with a vacancy rate under 2 to 2.5. I'm like, hello, Australia. Australia fits the bill, right? Yeah. You know, the, and, and inventory levels, which, you know, you've really kind of championed as part of the property vernacular, everywhere is kind of so tight. So as an investor, you're kind of spoilt for choice, but you want to, you want to outperform the general market. So that's sort of the, the topic for today. Mm. It's, it's difficult because, um, We've almost had to shift some goalposts. We used to say a fairly balanced market would have been a 3% vacancy rate. We used to say a fairly balanced mm. market in terms of inventory was five months of inventory. Now we've really shifted that. We're mm. probably saying, well, I'd say 2.5% now maybe you know, for vacancy rates and three months for inventory because things are so tight. All of it's been driven by an extremely low level of supply, going to potentially get even worse with the influx of, of migrants coming in and just not the housing stock uh, to back that up. So what would you do? The challenge here is some of those things that we could rely upon to build scorecards and models and filters uh, to isolate and identify the best areas. Um, some of those, they still apply, but you know you used to get 20 regions or 100 suburbs matching your requirements. Now you, you might get 30 or 40 regions matching those requirements or two or 300 suburbs. How do you apply uh, some filters to then say, well, which are the best of those? 
there you go. Yep. Yeah, and and it's it's interesting to kind of consider. Well, like things are going to get worse, which is a a problem for the country. It's a problem for economy. It's a problem for homelessness. But as as state politicians, um, present and recently retired, ha- have been working hard on this problem, they've actually kind of made it worse. So it's not like we're, as investors, want to be trying to capitalise on other people's misery, right? Investors are always a solution to the problem, but it does make sense to look at areas where that, that problem is, is strongest, because not only do you make the benefit of coming in and, and sort of helping that in some respects, but your returns will be there as well. Well, certainly the, the, the state governments have laid bare what their strategies are. They're very much in, focused on infill. Uh, they don't want to solve this with urban sprawl. Mm. Um, so if you look at that and say, okay, well, they'll be looking at, at land holdings or airspace that are already owned by government. Um, so, you know, we could pretty much focus on a lot of rail uh, going corridors being used or rail, airspace above rail stations, yep. et cetera, as one example of many. So we're looking at you know, inner urban areas. Uh, we're looking at high density as the solution. Certainly, the governments are looking very closely at uh, prefabrication. So uh, for that to for, for it to all be solved, though, um, we're now at that point where affordability is key. If you're building a five hundred thousand dollar plus property, kind of where we're at now, and you know this better than anyone, right? The typical price for an, a new apartment even if you're building it on the cheap, by the time you allow for land, profit, uh, taxes, that's probably, what, 45% of the total cost of of a a unit or a new apartment being built, right? So if you're Mm. kind of looking at, say, a 500K build uh, and then you're looking at a 4% yield, that's no longer an affordable rent. That's a $400 a week rent. So for the average Australian, yes, yeah. suddenly you look at the, the, the market that we now have, it's no longer an affordable market. It doesn't matter if you build five or 5,000 or 500,000 apartments at, at that type of cost. It's who you're building them for. Um, so we, we've got this, this, this mm. crisis where it's almost, well, I look at it and say there's only one solution. Social housing um, is probably the only way forward. Uh, because there's only so many people that can rely on inherited wealth. Mm. And you're a graduate of Western Sydney social housing, and you turned out just just fine. Just a little bit. Um, well, it depends on what hour. Um, but <laughs> I, I, I look back now with a different perspective on growing up in public housing because I realise now how lucky I was in comparison to somebody who's in the private rental market in the lower socioeconomic space. So if you're if you're a low income earner trapped in private rental right now and you don't have family to rely on. So, you know, i.e. anyone who's arrived in Australia in the last five years uh, who isn't wealthy is in that category. They're a very vulnerable cohort. And we are looking to create a much larger cohort like that, bringing in a lot of people. Um, so it's a real concern. And I don't know if the governments are really joining the dots when it comes to my massive migration, shifts in migration policy, immigration policy. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there's a big problem there. There's a gap there. There's a problem with respect to the cost of building. If we are looking at $500,000-plus apartments uh, as the solution, 
Or who are you? Who's who's it solving? Uh, what problem is it solving? It's not uh, not yeah. really solving the affordability problem because it's now too expensive. So, if you bring in the government now, we say, okay, well, if if the land cost, which is what maybe say ten percent of the apartment building, if you or say probably thirty percent, ten percent of it's maybe profit, five percent of it's tax, etc. Suddenly, that five hundred thousand dollar property could be a $275,000 apartment, for example, by the government, if it's owned by the government. Yep. And then you apply a, a different uh, requirement for yield. So a private investor would probably want, want, say, 4%. The government probably be going to be happy with 2% yield. So suddenly now we're talking about a very, very mm-hmm. affordable rent, $150, $200 rent. You could follow the um, community housing model as well and then have it pegged to a percentage of your, your income. So a solution based on social housing, community housing, it could really turn out to be a rather healthy investment, um, not just from a, a societal yeah. perspective, you know, good for society, good for young people, good for you know, the lower socioeconomic, lower income. But I think it could be a good investment for the government. So so that really the, yeah. theme, the theme I thought was a really interesting one is Let's just say the government really got serious about these solutions, got its game on with uh, prefabrication, development above rail corridors, etc., and it did this at scale. What does that look like for the investor of five years' time or 10 years' time from now? And imagine being an investor yep. that, say, bought an apartment next to a place that's going to have 500 apartments that are all social housing or lower cost. Uh, lower price, uh, affordable was the word I was looking for. Um, the the issue really is then going to be: Would there have been a better option for me as an investor in twenty twenty four if I knew that was coming? And I think that's a really yes. interesting theme. And yeah. if you think about it too, if you were master planning all of this, you would want individual investors to spread out and go to where. Uh, the government is not going to be building 500 or 1,000 or 10,000 apartments, right? You'd want it spread out. You'd want them to invest in locations where the government won't be able to su- supply or are not going to be su- providing extra properties. So it makes more sense for me when I look at it stepping back. You'd say, well, go to those regional locations, go to those smaller centres, or maybe go to the go to the spots that will probably never change their zoning. Mm. And I suppose the government's looking at bang for buck and they want big press release style statements where we're building 500 apartments here, we're building 500, 1,000 apartments here, we've got X amount of doors, X amount of places. So they are going to look to the to the dense populations, right? They're not necessarily going to look uh, to places like Dubbo or Ipswich or Toowoomba or Ballarat. So is that sort of form its way into your thinking from That's your how I'm thinking futurist now. brain? Yeah, and, and I think in the perfect world, there would be some master planning <clears throat> underway here and coordination between, uh, obviously, you've mm-hmm. got, state government, you've got federal state governments, you've got social housing, you've got community housing groups, but then you've got the Mar and Par. I know that word, that's been criticised by a few people, but, you know, the individual investor, mm. Mar and Par investor, who cares for the word? If you could coordinate it well, you can execute a much better strategy by spreading this out. 
and, you know, effectively having mm. people focus on the Dubbo's, et cetera, where there might be a fair degree of rental pain now, but it's not maybe not high on the agenda for the state government to go and build an extra one or two or 300 rental properties. So I think that could be yes. a, a really interesting thing. The problem that won't go away for the individual investor is that $500,000 problem, which is, you know, if, if, if I'm building yeah. a $500,000 plus property, uh, it's not going to be an affordable property for most. And that's mm. that, well, therein lay the problem. The government's really got to, yeah, the government's really got to be serious about investing in, in innovative construction techniques and just precast and modular, as, as you say. And there's a whole planning piece to this, okay, uh, this, to this problem as well. Um, and I maybe am a little bit, the glass is half full and it's got a leak and they're not making glasses or water anymore. But I, I don't back the government as being able to solve this. Like if you look at, the, the announcements that we've seen from the states have actually made it worse. We're seeing investors exit states like Victoria and Queensland en masse, maybe profit-taking, but I, I think there's some arduous conditions placed on investors that's making them just kind of think this is too hard. But if we can take the glass half full and the gla glass full options and say, okay, well, if the government does get it right – where are the opportunities for investors? And if things stay the way they are or get even worse, as we're seeing uh, international migration at you know, hundreds of thousands of people, 600,000 people a year, and we're building like 170,000, where are the opportunities? That's it. And, and uh, there's, there's plenty of uh, opportunities when you start to look at it and say, okay, there, there's a very still a very large cohort of um, boomers who are still in their original house that might be a you know, three or a four bedroom house. So we know that if they move into a retirement home or a granny flat or something, that that's a that's there's a lot of property that that fits that bill. So that's great. That helps. That mm -hmm. that puts some more property back into the hands. Typically, they're going to be properties most suited to to owner occupied. But um, yeah, I think. I think that there's a range of initiatives. So if we kind of look at medium and high density as the primary solution, because we need to build stuff fast, um, we almost kind of need to think like the mm. Soviets thought in, with their panel construction era, where they built you know massive Soviet mm. era style apartments at scale. That's the stuff that we need. That's how we need to be thinking. So we because we're so behind the eight ball. So the issue then is well. If that is the likely scenario through 3D printing prefabrication, which is you know very much the focus, we know that they'll be looking at these locations that are along rail corridors as the priority. Then the then the opportunity is well, let's go to places other than those locations to invest as an individual. Um, you know, let's still tap into those technologies of prefabrication, uh, etc., such that maybe I can build. Mm. Um, some townhomes, I can tap into some friendly zoning changes, um, you know, and I think there's going to be some opportunities along those lines. I think a lot of local councils, a lot of state governments are already looking at zoning changes. I think the, the Auckland case study is fascinating. There were some very good white papers that have just been released in the last week analysing that shift in from uh, the Auckland government, local government, where they made significant changes you'd probably be across it but effectively um, a, a lot of development went on a lot of infill happened 
and it happened in the private domain and it had a significant impact on housing. Yeah. So if we if we do believe that the government is is going to tackle this issue and make an investment that historically they've sort of been going the other way in in terms of the amount of social housing that they operate it seems like it's it's been shrinking and shrinking and through whatever vehicle whether it's community housing grants or whether it is you know revamping social housing for for investors that are wanting to to take advantage of that is it more about avoiding those areas around rail cor- corridors that have that capacity for high density yeah i think so that could be interesting too because when i'm thinking about these small investors i'm not thinking about a trust or a, a you know, a, a corporate entity as such. But, you know, the build to rent could be an interesting yeah. one because there could be a number of um, opportunities to invest in a build to rent operation. So I think that's a different thing. I'm kind of more thinking yes. of the, the traditional space where somebody buys an apartment or buys a house or builds a duplex or whatnot. I think the fascinating opportunity is going mm-hmm. to be where we get some friendly rezoning scenarios in the dubbos of the world, etc., where we can focus on properties yep. that might be sitting on 800 square metres and larger and, and go and build uh, for less than that $500,000 mark, you know, something because of the prefabrication yep. opportunity. So that should be the opportunity space, I think. You know, I'd be – I'm certainly personally interested in those situations where I could go and find a nice big block in a location that's not going to be crowded out by a big government uh, supplier properties um, that could then uh, benefit from some rezoning and or benefit from uh, you know lower cost of construction in the future. Mm. And Mark Twain's father said, "Buy land, son. They ain't making any more of it." I think it's wrongly attributed to Mark Twain himself, but as a scholar, um, eighteen thirty-five, nineteen ten. You can tell I'm a big fan. Um, I think it was his father. But if we think about land, gee, this got left field. I'm bringing it back. Um, if we think about land, it's it's a resource that Australia really has in abundance, but we don't occupy the middle bits, right? So there there is still a premium for land. Land values really accelerate because we want to live close to amenities. We want to live on the coast, but there are still places in the country that have demand for housing, but they do have those bigger blocks. You know, 800 square metres sounds normal to me because I grew up in the country and, Mm. you know, I live in the suburbs of Newcastle and I think we've got about 990. But for a lot of people, it's like, wow, you could actually get three dwellings on that. Uh, Is that where your kind of head is at in these regional locations where if you are owning the land, you have potential? The Give for Growth Property Investing Podcast is presented by our business, MCG Quantity Surveyors. If you're an investor or a property professional looking to get the best tax depreciation deductions for yourself or your clients, please get in touch with us at mcgqs.com.au. It's our mission to help as many property investors as we can to maximise their claims and maximise their property education as well. Yeah, the the Auckland model transplanted into some of these other Australian locations and, and you know, where friendly rezoning occurs. And, uh, yeah, so I, I'd probably say that the, for it to truly happen, though, the, the issue that we, we still have as a country is that it's very hard for developers right now. You know, builders are going bust everywhere, uh, cost mm. through the roof. So it's not a profitable yes. game. So the market's failed on several fronts. So 
Uh, hopefully there's a solution that comes through in the form of, of prefabrication and some costs and markets adjust to, to bring things back um, to make it profitable for these developers. Uh, you know, you probably talk to many. I've got a few friends that I've talked to in the dev game and they want to get out. They want to get out of it. Uh, you know, yes. Just yeah. want to go and get a normal yeah, job. At the same just, time, we've got a... a- it's mad- madness. Yeah. At the same time, we've got a government saying we're going to build 240,000 homes every year for five years in a, lo- in, a, in a row. We've only seemingly done it once in about 2017, yet we're at a time where construction costs are still high. We've had all these liquidations of building companies. We've got a trades shortage. I mean, does that just kind of seem madness to you that, that they, could, they could even hope to build that amount of properties? I think... We- we need to explore the answers now, and I don't. I think we've just been so busy at the pub bragging about how much our house price has gone up for the last twenty years. Nobody's cared, <laughs> mm. you know, whether it be the pub yeah. or the cafe. But yeah. my point is that we all took our eye off the ball, you know. And and you go back thirty or forty years ago, pu- public housing. Well, that fifty years ago they built public housing. You know, the state government wanted to do it. Fast yeah. forward, we've now got the Minns government wanting to do it again. But what happened in between? You know, 40 years of neglect. So we can't fix that overnight. Yes. And the problem is we're trying to fix it at the same time as having all of these supply constraints and not enough tradespeople, et cetera, because all the kids want to do useless bullshit. Sorry, I can't swear, can I? That's a different podcast. <laughs> yeah, silly degrees when they should be doing trades. That's fine. You know, and, and, and what we... Yeah, we've just got a this, this massive cultural shift that needs to happen to get back to to, to reality. Mm. Well, who knows what the future holds in that regard? But with the situation such as it is at the moment, where it seems to be getting worse, and and perhaps the government will get their act together at the the federal, state, and and local level, but. For these places, you, you sort of mentioned Dubbo as an example. What are some of these regional locations that stand out to you that have strong fundamentals in terms of, you know, a, a healthy population with diverse industry drivers? Yeah, I think, well, one thing we've not spoken about much in the last few years is water. And I think we need to very yep. much focus on on water with, with, you know, I think drought's going to be a reality for the next few years and, Suddenly it'll come back into play. So, you know, I I like far north Queensland. I like Cairns. I like Townsville. I like Albury. Uh, and, and, and the reason why I'm listing some of these locations is because of water. You know, they've got water supply. Albury's got a fantastic water catchment mm. section uh, or dam effectively. So I, I, you know, I'd probably say we need to very much not forget, not neglect water as the first priority, obviously. But there's just so many of these cities where you can build in a 360-degree radius around them, whereas all of our focus has been development of cities along the coastline where there's only so much land we could use. And that's really been a key driver of housing costs in Australia when you compare and contrast that to America. And I I remember flying over America at nighttime, and you've probably done it yourself, and you look down and you see this city that just sprawls out you know, 360 degrees, you see the lights going out in every direction. And that just, when it dawns on you, you say, okay, that's why it's it's not as expensive. Um, housing's not as expensive in the US. 
yet it is expensive along the coastline. So, you know, yes, they've got problems in San Francisco. Yes, they've got problems in LA and New York for the same reasons we do. You know, it's the position and placement of the cities yeah. where Canberra's a bit of an anomaly, obviously, because uh, it, its constraints are, uh, they're man-made lines of a boundary. Yeah, but you could pull out pull out a pen and solve the problem in Canberra overnight, literally. Yeah, you know, shift the yeah. boundary. Yeah, shift it's amazing how how strong the median prices are in in Canberra. It's mm. it's one of those markets that just kind of defies logic in Crazy. some Crazy, like it's just under the asking price at the moment is just under a million dollars median for houses. And, mm. you know, at, at, at times over the last few years, I thought it may have pipped Sydney, Greater Sydney, for its median price because the fundamentals are so yep. strong. And when you look at it, you know, I've just done an analysis of the, the worst suburbs or SA2 suburb groups to rent. And I did an interview in Canberra this morning and um, you looked at the average household income for the top 25 in national list and then the top 25 um, worst places to rent in ACT. And the household income level was almost perfectly $1,000 per week difference. So there's such a strong income level right. there that ACT scores in my rent pain index score are much lower, primarily because they're not paying above 30% household income on rents because their income's so high. So it's a bit of an anomaly. Big bucks with all those government contracts. Massive bucks. So the, the, there is an anomaly down there, a couple of anomalies. Obviously, the the, the socioeconomics of, you know, the, every suburb's pretty much 8, 9 or 10 C for score. Um, the household incomes are high. But you've also then got that an other anomaly that uh, th there's this border that just, it's just crazy because you, you look at it from a satellite image, you go, look at all that land. You know, why can't you just spread out even further and double or triple the size of this city? Well, the reason is there's a border there, you know, and, and if yeah. you could shift that border and expand that border out by another 20 or 30 or 50 kilometres, uh, imagine uh, the, the impact it could have. But, you know, you could still apply that same uh, rule or focus to a place like Albury. And, you know, just what a wonderful place. And you know Albury better than most. And... Yeah, you've got water and you've got the foundations there. So an Albury is a great example. And, you know, I, I know that there's been a few problems with the inland rail, but you do have rail there. And it is part of that in, inland rail yeah. network. And for a long time, I thought that inland rail project could have been part of the solution. If you could simply uh, cover the water issue, then we could have all of these wonderful inland cities serviced by the inland rail uh, and it's not limited to just freight. You could put high-quality sleeper trains, you know, overnight sleeper-type carriages. They have a luxury mm. trip to Brisbane or a luxury trip to Melbourne, whatever. I, I have always thought, and probably still do, um, think that that could be the answer for the kids. But, you know, the way it's going, it's more as if mm. it's going to be a Soviet-style solution, um, government-owned units and everybody, you know, becoming a, a houser like me. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, that's a cautionary tale if ever I've heard yes. one. Um, now, Kent, for to, to get to get back to the original thread, which is when the country looks so good as an investor, how do we find the goodest of the good? And the goodest. Of We've the talked good. about 
access to transport with rail we've we've talked about water and and resources which is not something that comes up very very often we've talked about you know what what the government might do that could influence supply and and potentially staying away from that what what are some of the other things that that you look at when if someone's coming to you and I'm sure they do can you know like I've got Five or six hundred grand to spend. Where do I go? Yeah, um, it's it's interesting. One of the common themes that I've had with some people that have been uh, just one-on-one training type coaching thing with me is uh, pick a region that has the fundamentals. Has kind of been my rule. Like, don't jump at month-to-month market fluctuations. Don't jump at shadows. So, pick the regions that have some solid fundamentals. Um, being the hospital you know, be it transport, et cetera. So, yeah, industry, uh, diversification in industry, all those things that you could determine by not even looking at housing market data. You're looking at census data. You're looking at yeah. economic data, et cetera. So shortlist your regions and then overlay some market data to try and shortlist that. You say you're not looking at 200 regions, you're looking at maybe 20 then look at some housing fundamental data. So the things I like to look at it, obviously from a housing market data now, is a big shift and big focus on affordability. So the metric or measure of affordability wasn't a, wasn't big on my scorecards three years ago, four years ago when we were, you know, talking about these scorecards a lot on the podcast last time. Uh, I would argue now that affordability is probably the biggest variable of interest for me, and that being affordability for renters, as in the percentage of household income allocated to rent, because if that gets too far above 32% over a long period of time, Zillow and a few other people have done some really good research papers um, around the correlation between uh, rental affordability and homelessness. So if you go above 32% for a prolonged period of time, there's a pretty solid algorithm, pretty solid correlation that says homelessness. And when you've got homelessness in a regional centre or anywhere, uh, it hurts everybody. It hurts the homeless people the most. It hurts everything. So it's a bad, bad thing. Mm. Um so I would say affordability is a standout. So if you if you got the choice between area A and B, and A is an area where people are spending 26% of household income on rents, and area B is spending 35%, you know which one I'd go for. Yep. So that's the first one. And then yep. uh, you know, directly related to that is obviously affordability in terms of how many years of household income would it take for me to cover the median price to buy. So you've still yep. got a number of regions where you can buy for less than 10 years of household income. So right. you know, I think that's a standout. So still affordable. And, you know, an example of what happened with that, that the great exodus of COVID was that a lot of people with Sydney budgets went to the South Coast, went to the far North Coast, Richmond, Tweed, Byron, you name it, right? And suddenly these markets... Uh, relative to the l- local household income uh, household income levels, which was the census data for the locals, um, suddenly the house prices detached themselves entirely from those local economies, like jumped up to 20 plus yeah. years. So suddenly then you realise, well, unless you've got that steady flow of buyer coming in from Sydney forever, 
how can you sustain that type of market growth? Yeah. You can't unless there's yeah, a like steady how many, flow. How many Hemsworth brothers are there? That, yeah, and there's I know there's a few hundred, but, you know, you need more than that to sustain <laughs> that level of housing market growth. Um, so even yeah. though we brought in quite a few of his mates from Hollywood, so you can probably see what did happen. Those housing markets were some of the ones that have corrected the most in the last 12 months, 18 months. They've, they've, mm. And I say that's because mm. they've detached themselves from the local economy. And, yes, it's, it's real that yes. you've got a percentage of buyers that are always coming in from Sydney. We know that. That's a fine thing. That's only a proportion of the housing buyer market. Um, we, we don't want to mm. neglect the local buyers and and the, the concern there is you know we want and need local buyers to stay local because they run shops and run trade services and they're builders and they're this that and the other so i i think prices have this this equilibrium point that that you know you 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 can break it but it comes back you can you know it, it can it can sometimes surge and prices can get up to 20 plus years times household income but i don't think that they can stay there and and if i were to bet on a location yeah, yeah. i'd always bet on the location that has a healthier balance in terms of affordability so yeah that's a very interesting insight and our own data uh, is showing that and i think the pippa survey as well as the places like wa who have got much better or places like WA, it's a state. Um, suburbs well, in and it nearly became Perth a country, so right? I saw popular the, yeah. with investors. Yeah, I look. Yeah, that was in the news. I talking saw. about um, not joining federation and trying to succeed from Australia. Yeah, well, why not? They're quirky over there. Um, so the I think South Australian WA are making some very interesting case studies now. Um, I'm seeing an abundance of South Australia. Um, especially South Australia um, and and a lot of Queensland making up that uh, worst places to rent list, um, you know, the rent pain index. Right. So there's been a massive shift in WA and SA. Um, these are places that have always been the affordable place. Yes, I know Perth went through that surge during the mining boom and there was a time in the 80s when things were extraordinarily expensive. I get it. But by and large, for the last decade, we've looked at WA and SA as affordable places, affordable to buy, affordable to rent. There's been a very strong and steady flow of investors moving there, but it's not just that. A lot of people, especially people who moved to Melbourne, uh, used COVID as an excuse to to move back home, air quotes, you know, and, and, and shifted back. So I know several people who moved from Victoria, moved from Melbourne, went back to Adelaide. So as a result, yeah, right. we've seen some massive growth rates in South Australia, massive growth rates now in WA with people, pursue, whether it be owner-occupied or investors, pursuing affordable, affordable as in low price. And what's happening now is they might still be low price, but they're relative to household income, they're no longer affordable. So as a, a when mm, you peg yeah, those okay. prices now to the local average household income for most of these spot for a lot of these spots, they've detached themselves entirely. So you know we're talking, um, you know, 
35 40% of household income being allocated to rent as an average metric in so many of these these spots Seaton Grange as an example South Australia um that's 35% of you know household income um uh, South Australia Christie Downs was number 1 in my list actually I should have gone straight to that that's 41% of household income being allocated to rent on mm-hmm. average now that's a problem yep just, you know, how do you sustain that? How does that help the local economy? How do you how do you have any money left over to go and spend it at the local pub that employs two or three or four extra people because of your spending and others like you spending? So suddenly they downsize because the pub's not as busy. Yep. So it, it has a flow and impact because a circular flow of income. We all know that stuff from high school economics. So. I think affordability is my number one thing now. Um, so you've got obviously the fundamental stuff of, you know, does it have all the infrastructure, et cetera? Does it have elements of regentrification? Does it have infrastructure spending, et cetera? All that stuff that you can determine without even looking at housing market data. Then when you move to housing market data, I'd very much focus on affordability. And then the third piece was what we opened with is, I'd focus on locations that aren't going to be at risk of crowding you out in 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 the, in the form of uh, the government coming in and building on on mass on government owned land above rail etc which I support wholeheartedly yeah. it's just that if you know that's coming wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to coordinate what you do as an individual investor with the planning of the state yeah, magic. Yeah, magic. and either way, whether they get it right or wrong, those fundamentals you've given us is a pretty good checklist checklist for for any investor that's wanting to to outperform the market, right? Well, yeah, I hope so. You know, you you you, you do your best, and uh, <laughs> and you try and give people some 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 things to focus on, and then you can then they do their own homework. They still have to do the homework, but the other thing that I with this young young couple of guys that just did their buyer's agent course and I was coaching them. I said, look, focus on the region and then go straight to the house. What I mean by that is don't worry too much about using suburb level filters because a lot of your suburb level measures are medians and you you effectively forget that if you're focusing on a 4% yield, that means that half the properties are selling above and half of the properties are below that 4%, et cetera. So people put these hard filters mm-hmm. in at a suburb level and they leave up to 80% of the properties that are really good, suitable properties out of their, out, off their list, not even in contention because they're using these suburb level yep. filters, which is just the wrong way to do it. So I'd, I'd focus on regions based on all of the above stuff we spoke about and then search the entire region at one time, typically doing sort by lowest price to highest. Um, and then that uncovers all sorts of properties that you would otherwise not find in suburbs that you would otherwise not look at. And there are all sorts of suburbs that I was uncovering in Newcastle and Lake Macquarie, for example, that I'd not even, don't even know their names. And they're spitting out all of these villas everywhere that were eight, nine percent yields. That was only last week. It's like, holy crap, look at this. Look at that. Look at this. So I'd probably say yeah. that's how I would do it is, 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 um, Find your regions, get familiar with those regions, get, you know, make sure that you're comfortable with all of the metrics and all the measures, know what pipeline infrastructure is coming in, know those regions inside and out, be a specialist in two or three or four of them, just double down on that and then 
go to the property. I love that. We always get sagely advice from you, Kent. So thank you for giving us your roadmap for success in the new normal of everything's good, so just find the good. Normal. What's normal? Gosh. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Cheers, Kent. Thank you.